Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. An interesting medical story this week. There's good news and high optimism that there could be an HIV vaccine as soon as 2021. There are three experimental HIV vaccines that are in the final stages of testing right now, and it's promising that these trials have made it this far. The trials are focusing on different demographics in different parts of the world. For more on why scientists are more hopeful for a vaccine than any other time, we spoke to Tim Fitzsimmons, reporter for NBC News. There are three trials ongoing right now. They're all in the late stages, which means they're being tested in humans to see if they work at preventing HIV. They already know and believe that they're safe. So now it's just the proof of concept. The three trials are HVTN702, and HVTN stands for the HIV Vaccine Trial Network. There's another one called Imbocodo, and there's a third one called Mosaico. They're all a little bit different, but HVTN702 is the closest to a vaccine candidate that almost worked, and it was called the Thai trial because it took place in Thailand. And that's the last and only time any HIV vaccine had any impact on the transmission of the virus. And it found a 30% reduction in HIV transmission of people who had that vaccine candidate. And they're thinking that this new one right now could be getting closer to about 50%. We're talking about the optimism of these things, but experts are really saying that any partially effective vaccine is a huge breakthrough. It would be a win for everybody on that front. One of the things people don't realize about HIV is it's actually very hard to transmit. It's not like a flu or meningitis where you can contract the disease by kissing or by sneezing. We really need blood or fluid transfer. So in terms of what the percentage efficacy that would have an impact on the epidemic, on the transmission worldwide, experts I spoke to, like Dr. Susan Buckbinder and Dr. Anthony Fauci, they both say that something between 50 and 60 percent would likely be sufficient. So even if any of these three vaccines is at least 50 to 60 percent effective, there's a high chance they will be licensed and distributed around the world because the statisticians who look at these questions see that if you were to distribute something that was that effective to as many people as possible around the world, the transmission rates would start to crater everywhere and the epidemic would start to wind down on its own. The HVTN trial, we could be seeing some results in late 2020 or early 2021. What about the other two? I know that these two are a lot more similar in what they are, but the Imbocodo trial, that one's dealing mostly with women, right? So Imbocodo and Mosaico are basically two sides of the same coin. They're very similar. They use something called a mosaic immunogen, which is basically they've tried to figure out what are the ways we can train the immune system to create a killer attack on HIV because, as we all know, regular immune systems don't kill HIV. It's Your body doesn't get rid of it on its own as it is right now. So Imbocodo and Mosaico, Imbocodo is different in that it only is enrolling women. They completed enrollment of 2,600 women this past summer. They're all from Southern African nations. These women are extremely high risk of HIV in all these countries. As Dr. Fauci told me, it's if you want a group of people who you can find out if a vaccine is working well, it would be in women in Southern African countries. And then the second one, Mosaico, is just beginning to enroll men who have sex with men, gay men, in the United States, Canada, Europe, and South America, and Latin America. And that essentially is almost the exact same vaccine as Imbocodo. It's just a slightly different injection regimen. So you, 
basically the person would get a different sort of immune booster at some point in the various shots that is hypothesized to perhaps be a, a little bit better. And how do those treatments work? There's a lot of different shots you got to get. It's, these are multiple injections. It's not like just one thing and then they monitor you. This is over the course of a long time and like I said, multiple treatments. They'd be about six vaccinations, six shots, essentially, over the course of a year. I think that's really where a lot of the investigation has been looking at over the past few years since the failure of the Thailand vaccine trial, because that one almost worked well enough. So they're sort of looking, they've been looking at ways to boost the immune response so that when you get the injection, your body is able to make enough and sufficient and the correct immunogens to kill HIV, which, of course, the body doesn't do on its own. It's actually very hard to create a vaccine for any disease of the body has no history of clearing. You know, with polio, some people got over it. Other things that have been cured, there was something to look at. But in this case, they're sort of guessing. What about some of the stuff that's already out in the market? I've been hearing a lot about PrEP. There's also this other stuff, treatment as prevention. Mm -hmm. What do we know about these? Basically, both are ways of using HIV medications. The quickest way to describe it is if you are at risk of getting HIV or you have HIV, taking a pill once a day of HIV medicine will mean that you either can't get it or can't transmit it in sex. Tim Fitzsimmons, reporter for NBC News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. A fun food story that developed this week. McDonald's is finally getting into the chicken sandwich wars with its latest offering. It's a fried chicken filet topped with butter and pickles. A deluxe version has tomatoes, lettuce, and mayo. But for now, this is just in the testing phase and only available in Houston, Texas and Knoxville, Tennessee. For more on this, we spoke to Kate Taylor. She's a correspondent at Business Insider. For McDonald's, big play in the effort to compete in the new battlegrounds for fast food, chicken, and breakfast. What we know about this is using an entirely new chicken filet that McDonald's has used before. So obviously, McDonald's has had chicken on the menu for a while. The most interesting thing about this is we know that McDonald's has been under pressure to get a better chicken sandwich. And this seems like their test at doing just that. And that's so important, that chicken filet, because when we talked about Popeye's, I mean, one of the big problems with them selling out was that that filet that they were using, that particular one sold out. So whatever company they were using to get all those, they just, you know, obviously didn't correctly anticipate the demand that ended up happening because it went so viral. But that is the important part right there. As you said, McDonald's has other chicken offerings. So this is going to be very key. It was super interesting because when we had these chicken sandwich wars earlier this year, just a couple months ago, McDonald's said even though their hamburger sales were up compared to other companies selling hamburgers, their chicken sales were down because there were other options that people wanted to try. So McDonald's is seeing that their chicken sandwich right now can't measure up to the competition. And even before these kind of recent discussion of Popeye's, they kind of knew that. People have been seeing Chick-fil-A do so well, and McDonald's franchisees have been asking the company, hey, when are we going to be able to have a chicken sandwich that can compete with Chick-fil-A and now that can also compete with Popeye's? They were asking for a Southern style chicken sandwich really to take on Chick-fil-A and then Popeye's came in with their whole thing. So now it's kind of, you know, everybody's competing for this part of the market right there. Okay, so tell us what this new chicken sandwich is going to look like. What is it going to have on it? So we've got two options. We have a simple one that's looking very Chick-fil-A-esque. That is a apparently slightly sweet bun, chicken, and then pickles. And then there's a more deluxe version, which also has tomato, lettuce, mayo. So that's kind of the deluxe. And then you have the simple one. So the biggest change isn't necessarily the add-ons. It's the chicken itself. That and I think the other important thing is that it's going to be served in a little foil bag. 
which is kind of like the way yes. Chick-fil-A and some other, so, you know, and, and Popeye's does it. I mean, this is almost like this is our direct competition. This is our fighter in the wars kind of thing, especially since they're stylizing it so similar. It's something that McDonald's hasn't made a huge thing about a chicken sandwich before. A couple months ago, they tried a new spicy barbecue chicken sandwich, basically the buttermilk crispy sandwich they already had on the menu with a new sauce. So this is kind of represents them going back to the beginning and kind of starting from every level where new chicken, new packaging, hopefully new chicken sandwich that can compete (laughs) with these major rivals. (laughs) Yeah, I had that spicy barbecue chicken sandwich and I wasn't too impressed. As you said, it was basically the same thing just with a new sauce and it was just a little jumbled. I didn't really like it too much. But they've been looking at getting into the chicken market for some time. They're also planning to roll out chicken at breakfast in the coming year also. I've seen at my local McDonald's some things like a a chicken McGriddle and things like that. But what are we expecting for them in the way of breakfast? So I got my hand on some internal documents that said that they're launching chicken at breakfast. At this point, we know that McDonald's has chicken at breakfast, whether that's a McGriddle or something else at about half of its stores in the U.S. So we don't know exactly what it's going to be. And it's kind of interesting that they're keeping exactly what it's going to be so under wraps, even internally. So my bet is that this new chicken that they're testing could play a role in their breakfast rollout. If this does well, maybe they're making some tweaks to their chicken more generally. Maybe they'll use this new filet. I'm not completely sure, but I think it's kind of interesting that they're testing this right before they roll out breakfast next year. It's so interesting the way McDonald's operates. Obviously, they're so iconic. I think they are the largest restaurant chain by sales. So when trends start happening, they're usually reactionary versus kind of taking the lead on some of this stuff. So even on the breakfast side, Wendy's is launching a breakfast menu that's going to include a honey butter chicken sandwich. So they're seeing what other people are doing and they're trying to get in that game and obviously hoping that their submissions will be better. But this is the battleground right now for fast food is breakfast and chicken. Wendy's getting into breakfast is also something that McDonald's does not want to work out. The last time Wendy's tried to add breakfast to the menu, McDonald's basically kind of smothered it, where in areas where Wendy's was testing it or had added it to the menu, McDonald's just slashed down the prices on its breakfast menu. So people were like, well, McDonald's is cheaper. I'm going to go there. (laughs) And Wendy's ended up having to cancel its breakfast rollout at the time. So this time Wendy's is coming out, they were kind of, bring out the big gun. So I think that'll be really, really interesting because McDonald's definitely needs to come in with some interesting menu items and some really good deals. Kate Taylor, correspondent at Business Insider. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. Finally, for this week, we talk about one of the most compelling UFO cases in modern history, the Nimitz UFO Encounters. And while we already know how the Nimitz encountered a tic-tac-shaped aerial vehicle, we're hearing from other witnesses to the event. These witness accounts say that shortly after that encounter, there was a rush to turn over all the data concerning the UFO sighting and that two men quickly departed with all that relevant data. To hear more about what we learned from these other Nimitz witnesses, we spoke to Tim McMillan, contributor to Popular Mechanics. In November 2004, the Strike Carrier Group 11, the Nimitz Carrier Group, was undergoing workups before pre-deployment. They also had a host of new technology on board they were working the kinks out with. Very shortly after going underway in the radar center, they started getting very peculiar radar returns, strange returns on their scopes. Some of these systems were brand new, like the Spy 1 Bravo radar system. And so initially they thought they were ghost or clutter 
meaning the system's malfunctioning. And I was able to speak to both the, the people who were observing those on the scopes and then the guy whose job, the one person on the USS Princeton whose job it was to make sure those things were working properly. So they took the systems down, put them back up, and these contacts were clearer and still there. They were better than they were before. And they were just peculiar. They were moving, they were going up and down from 80,000 feet to 60,000 feet to 30,000 feet very rapidly, according to the systems. And they were moving in groups of 10 at a time at roughly around 100 knots. So very slow, slower than a fixed wing aircraft should be cruising. After this went on for about a week, Kevin Day, who's the chief combat controller inside the USS Princeton, which is the missile cruiser ship. He told me he takes the planes to the fight. He controls the airspace around the group. It's his job. He was able to convince his commander that he felt like these objects needed to be investigated. They happened to have two F-18s going up that day for an exercise. And so he was able to take control, which means direct them in to try to locate one of these objects. And that which, brings us to mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the squadron commander, David Fravor, who went out there. Yes. And then mm-hmm. we have this summary of what he saw. What he mm-hmm. saw was this anomalous aerial vehicle, as they describe it. And it descended very rapidly from approximately 60,000 feet to about 50 feet in a matter of seconds. And he reported that it was an elongated egg or a tic-tac shape, solid white, smooth with no edges. And it was making all of these crazy twists and turns in the air, something that they hadn't encountered before. We have three other eyewitnesses because there were two planes in the air. So each one had a weapon system officer and a pilot on board. And so Commander Fravor is really the only one we've heard from. But what they saw was exactly what you described, the the tic-tac, as it's been called, about 40 feet in length, no control surfaces. It actually began to mimic Commander Fravor's flight pattern. He was circling down to get closer to the object because it was hovering over the ocean surface. And as he's circling down, it's circling up, following him. And when he describes his cuts the pie, like he's trying to cut across the circle to get behind it, kind of like a dogfight at this point, him and the other pilots describe this thing instantaneously taking off at a hypersonic speed unlike anything they'd ever seen. It would be subsequently where we got the video that I think has been released and maybe is describing some of the movements that you mentioned. That would come when Commander Fravor and his wingmen landed back on the Nimitz and had another flight going up. And fighter pilots, I give them credit, man. Nothing but respect for those guys because they want to go chase the drama. (laughs) Exactly. What happens Mm -hmm. after all of that and some of the other witnesses that you talked to? Because on the deck there, they were reviewing video. They were looking over stuff. And that's where some of the witnesses, other witnesses come in. They saw some of this video going down. And then the other shocking part of this was that uh, all the data and the tapes and various systems that recorded these events, there were reports that a couple of guys showed up on a helicopter to confiscate all of that. Tapes might have been recorded over. This is like the next part of the mystery is what happened to all that quote unquote evidence. That was the big part of the mystery that has never really been discussed until that article came out, other than a good friend of mine who I met through this process, who's turned into a great friend, Dave Beatty, who put a YouTube documentary out and was able to find a lot of these guys. But outside that, it had never been discussed. And I think, in my opinion, is probably the most significant part of this story is indeed what you just described. Each one of these individuals did not tell the same story Each had a piece of the story that came together that allowed me to track these people's movements and that two individuals who were not part of the group 
flew aboard a helicopter, landed on the Princeton, seized all the top secret data that would have covered all the radar, the communications, everything. Flew to the USS Nimitz, seized all the data from the E-2 Hawkeye, which is the airborne defense planes, the planes with the big radar dish on top. And it's kind of in dispute, but possibly sees the original at FLIR videos of this. The video that has been released now almost two years ago is one minute and 16 second clip. And frankly, it's like every other UFO video I've ever seen. It's blurry black and white. And you're like, <laughs> right. hey, there's something there. Yeah. Um, they describe something far more dramatic and describe seeing this craft making acute right angle turns, stopping and then instantly going. Jason Turner, who was a supply technician aboard the USS Princeton, who just happened to be delivered supplies to the intelligence center room because he held a top secret clearance. And a, a friend of his said, hey, man, check this out. When he retells that story of what he saw in that video, it was remarkable for me because 15 years later, he's bothered by what he saw. So whatever he saw definitely wasn't normal. None of them described seeing something normal. And so I think that's the biggest part of the story that has just not been pushed out there enough is there's certainly preponderance evidence based on these witness testimonies, based on me and my own investigation, which included going out and tracking down a purely brand new witness who had never spoken out about it, knew the event had hit the news, but wasn't aware that his fellow sailors had spoken out. I gave him no background whatsoever, and he wished to remain anonymous because he holds a position still no longer in the military, but one that is of public trust. And he told me the exact same thing in terms of these guys showing up and taking top secret stuff. There was one point of contention, though, because Commander David Fravor did at some point cast some doubt on some of the accounts by some of these other witnesses. You were talking about the video and how the video that was released was only about a minute and 16 seconds long. But some of these other witnesses were saying that that video might have been longer, eight to 10 minutes or something, where they could see a lot more stuff in detail. Commander mm -hmm. Fravor on a podcast, I think he was on Joe Rogan's podcast, had said something about, well, you know, this is all BS. There wasn't anything mm -hmm. that then. There was no men in black suits that came and took up all of the evidence. And that was a big motivation for wanting to do this piece because I've been looking at the incident for a while, but it, I was frustrated because I said, nobody's mitigated this dispute. And I think it's a significant dispute. And so at the end of talking to everybody, which included some fighter pilots who were not in Commander Fravor's squadron, but they were F-18 pilots aboard the Nimitz during the incident who were able to break down in detail how these processes work with the tapes, who they're turned into, this kind of stuff. In my opinion, I walked away with a clear picture to the fact the two different high probability events occur, which is another video was recorded that was longer. Whether Commander Fravor got a chance to see that or not, I don't believe he did at all. I don't believe Commander Fravor's lying at all. I believe his character and professionalism is beyond reproach. But I do believe that possibly what he was given back was the shortened version we see today. Right. And so when he saw it, he only saw the shortened version. The other possibility exists is there are some other classified different systems, um, video link systems in which the USS Princeton did have the capabilities of actually seeing and possibly recording through a data link a much longer version of it. Tim McMillan, retired police lieutenant, intelligence analyst, and contributor to Popular Mechanics. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. I appreciate it. That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media, at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter, and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. 
leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition. Oh,